This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What is up, Elevate? I'm really excited about tonight. I'm also incredibly intimidated by tonight. It is very heady. It deals with a lot of philosophy. But if you'll, if you'll buckle up, if you'll hang in there as we, as we weave through this, I think it's going to bless your hearts. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will anoint me to do your good work. Empower me. Lord, I pray that your word will be seeds in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give credit where credit is due. Tonight is brought to you pretty much 100% uh, not of me. This is all authors, uh, primarily C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, Ravi Zacharias. He wrote the book Jesus Among Foreign Gods, and Nabil Qureshi, who wrote Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. These three men have incredible theology and philosophy. They're apologists. Apologists not, don't mean that they apologize for their faith. It means that they defend the faith. And I hope that you get a lot out of this tonight. Tonight's message and emphasis is on goodness. And we are like strained so far from some sort of candy, sugar-coated, be nice to each other. We are diving into what is goodness? What is objective goodness? Society defines goodness. If you were to Google it, it would come up as this. Goodness, what is desired, what is approved of, and what is possessing moral virtue, moral, ethical virtue. Just a quick recap. We're in the series of the fruit of the Spirit, and we're definitely going out of order from the way it is in Galatians 5. But I want to start there, and we'll branch off. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step, step by step, with the Spirit. It's the impression of walking with Jesus. And these are not the works of Christians, something that we're supposed to pursue, like our new week's resolution. These are an overflowing of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. If we look at John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. For whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he or she that bears much fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we can only bear the fruit of the tree that we are grafted into. And those who are Christ's are grafted into his nature, and they show the fruit of his nature. So tonight's emphasis is on goodness. And I struggled, like, what's the difference between goodness and kindness or, or goodness and, and, and anything else? But I think that there's so much more depth than what we've ever unpacked before. 
Remember that tonight is not about just doing what is right. A lot of the world is attempting to do that, and they're failing. We are asking the question, what does a believer look like who pursues Jesus? That believer, that Jesus follower, is good. I want to open with this beautiful verse, and we're going to come back to it in the end. Psalm 31, 19 through 20. And you have to just, you have to hear the joy of the author in this. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. Where? Where are God's people? In your presence. From the plots of man, you shall keep him securely in a pavilion away from the strife of tongues. Goodness, by society's definition, is what is desired, what is approved of, and what is possessing moral virtue. And I hope you already are thinking through that definition to realize it is an incredibly flawed definition. Consider this. If goodness is what is desired, well, I desire my wife, but what if that guy over there desires my wife? Which of us is in the right? How do you know who's in the right? What is approved of? Consider, some nations around the world have, have no problem with when, like women not covering their top halves. But in the United States, we think that's, you know, modesty. So what is it? Which is approved of? How do we know what is actually good? What possesses moral virtue? But who sets the standard of what is moral? What, who says what is right or what is wrong? So we have to ask the question, is morality, is what is good, is it subjective or is it objective? And if you're new to those, those terminology, I'll unpack it very quickly. Subjective is defined as based or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. As in, her dress is very pretty. That is my opinion, my taste, but it may not be your taste or your opinion. Objective is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering or representing facts. It's not dependent on the mind for existence. It is actual, as in 10 minus 8 is 2. Whether I think it is or not, it doesn't matter. Whether I am intelligent or I am dumb, it still doesn't matter. 10 minus 8 will always equal 2. It is objective. You can't deviate from that truth, from that fact. So is morality... Is goodness subjective or is it objective? Subjective morality says you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. What I believe is right is right for me. You can do what's good for you and I'll do what's good for me. Have you heard that before? It is following your heart. Thank you, every Disney movie, for that. It is subjective goodness. The Bible calls it everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. What is so scary about subjective morality? What's so scary is that no two groups of people or even two individuals can ever agree consistently on what is good. Consider this. A good portion of the Eastern world thinks it would be right and good if the Western world no longer existed. Are they right? How can we say that they're not? Someone once asked, Ravi Zacharias, what, do you, what is wrong with subjective morality? What are you so afraid of? And Ravi responded by saying, excuse me, sir, 
do you lock your doors at night? And the whole auditorium laughed because they could see where he was going. And then he responded saying, sir, is it because you're, do you lock your doors? The guy said, yes. Do you lock your doors because you're concerned that someone of subjective morality may come into your house in the middle of the night? Subjective morality. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. The 20th century was the century of reason. It was the century of of open-mindedness, of subjective morality. And within the 20th century, there was more murderers, more people killed than in all 19 centuries before that combined. Russia and China alone slaughtered 130 million people, making the Nazis look like amateurs. There was a team of evangelists that went into a prison once. And as they were going in, and when they first caught sight of the inmates, a woman who was a part of the group immediately started backing up and said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to leave. There's, there's a man in there, and I can't see him. I can't confront him. So she stepped out, and not knowing exactly what was going on, the, the lead person there continued on in and began talking to the man. He came to find out later that this woman was a student on a college campus where this man was attacking women. He was raping them, he was abusing them, and he was cutting their bodies into pieces. And the the, the women on campus were living in fear constantly, day in and day out. And this man had finally been caught. And the leader of the group sat across from the bars with him and said, Sir, I'd like to ask you a question. What is it that you miss the most of being free? What is it you miss the most? And the man said, I miss my wife and my children. Consider that. The the very man who cherishes his own wife and his own children was able to rationalize the fact that he was raping, murdering, and cutting to pieces other people's children. Subjective morality. Whatever you can rationalize. Whatever is right in your eyes. Objective morality. Is the idea of consistent, righteous framework for ethics, of which all must conform to. What's so scary about objective morality? What's so scary about it is that we have to surrender those desires that are outside of that objective goodness. We have to accept, if there is objective morality, that I don't get to do whatever I want. I have to submit to whatever that objective goodness is. The Bible calls it righteousness. C.S. Lewis proposes that morality seems to be concerned with three things. I'm going to mention two, and I'll come back around to the third later. It it deals with fair play and harmony between individuals, as in we all get along in society, how I treat other people. And number two, it deals with cleaning up, working on, or harmonizing what is inside each of those individuals, the person behind the face who is operating in society. And he gives a great illustration of a fleet of ships that are all sailing together, And that number one, the idea of how we interact with each other, are those ships trying not to collide into each other on their voyage. 
And number two is dealing with those ships being kept in right order, as in they're mechanically sound. They are functioning well. That is the quality of the person inside of society. For those people that make the shallow argument that what is good is anything that doesn't harm someone else, they are focused entirely on just point number one. The point number one is how we interact with other people, right? And this is a very easy argument to make. It's very easy to focus on it because we can see what happens when someone acts outside of morality. It causes wars and famines and terrible things. And so it's, it's actually politically correct to be focused on just number one of trying to conform a creature, a human, into fitting a certain structure of rules. And we'll see that happening over and over again. Society likes to focus on it because it's obvious and it's easy to try to convince people to try to be nice to each other. Don't run your ship into anybody else. But those who take this stance are really fooling themselves. Because unless we deal with what is inside a person, what is inside and how the ship is functioning on the inside, there eventually that ship is going to break down and begin colliding with people anyway. What's the point of trying to keep ships in formation to avoid collision if they're so badly misused and abused that they can't even be steered? They'll just collide with each other anyway. And so this is what we see in society. We're trying to fix people from hurting each other. But we're so focused on that that we're not actually dealing with the root problem, and that is that people are broken inside. Does our morality simply come from the customs of the land? I was raised in the United States, so I think like an American, and my, maybe my morality is based on American ideals. So is morality just a cultural custom, or is it objective truth? Is it outside of man? Consider how when we look at other nations, other cultures throughout time, we will see vastly different customs. I guess the question we're, we're making here is, is morality a lot like, is that, is that dress pretty? Or is morality like math, subjective or objective? When we look at all of these cultures, we can look at them and see that they are vastly different. Some of those cultures may elect, men are allowed to have one wife, and some cultures may have three wives. That's, that's crazy different. But if we look at a little bit deeper, we realize that Every society across history all sees rape as a bad thing. You know, and we may have very different military structures, very different strategies, but in no culture ever has it seemed noble to run away from the enemy, to run away from the front lines. No matter how different the customs seem, it seems that if we peel back the layers just a little bit more, we'll see that there is a common thread between all civilizations and societies. In fact, it seems that most societies feel that unselfishness is a good thing, that being honest in how you trade is virtuous. And it's interesting, the very person that says, there is no right and wrong, morality is subjective, and therefore they steal from you, that same person will become offended and angry when someone steals from them. So they're not even living up to the morals that they believe. It seems like when you dig down into someone, you really do find a consistency of moral truth. 
something that we all tend to conform to or tend to reject. Those thinkers that I met that I mentioned earlier, they argue that there is an objective moral law that's imprinted on humanity, one that we either deny or we accept and try to conform to, at least a little bit, an underlying nudge towards consistent ethics, which we all feel. And this, consu- uh, and this idea, this moral law, assumes a God who is a consistent and ethical creator. Many atheists may argue and say, how can there be a God when there is so much misery, when there's so much pain, when there's so much evil? But C.S. Lewis would ask the question, how can you recognize what is evil? What is your standard for recognizing that this thing is unjust? You don't call a line crooked unless you've seen a straight one. You can't call a room dark unless you've seen a room that was lit. How can you identify evil unless there is something, a baseline that we can compare that is good? A man who gets thrown into a lake feels wet, but you would never find a fish that felt wet because he belongs in the lake and a man belongs on land. And so this idea of evil, this idea of sin seems to be very unnatural to man. It seems to go against something inside of us that we push back and say, this is wrong. That sin is so unnatural to us that it eventually ruins us and drowns us. Sin is not Natural. It is not the way we were created to be. How can you identify evil and injustice unless there is an objective good to compare it to? An individual may look around and say, that's not right. Things are not the way they ought to be. How do you know what ought to be? We're broken. We're lost, selfishly fumbling with the idea of being, of being nice and unavoidably colliding with other ships. Science can tell us the what and the how, but science cannot tell us the why. Why are we here? What does it mean to be human? Who am I? They try to remove the idea of an intentional, sovereign purpose in creation. They try to remove the idea of of God and what they do when they remove that purpose is they remove that fact that life has intrinsic value. And when you remove the value on life, you throw open the doors to things like slavery and gas chambers and abortion. Where do we look for answers that science can't give? The only direction left to look is up. Ask this question of science. How does a non-moral beginning through an immoral process create moral reasoning? Go science. These men that I mentioned earlier, Lewis, Zacharias, and Qureshi, they propose that there is a good creator of all that is, and the fingerprint of his nature is stamped on his artwork. Now, as a disclaimer... I am by no means saying that man is intrinsically good. I am saying that there seems to be a God-given pressure on man to do what is right, 
that we either accept or reject that hides down underneath, deep down in our hearts. If there is a God who established a moral law, then he must be intensely interested in right conduct. If there is a God who has established a moral law in us, he must care about how we treat each other. Remember how he established law. Exodus 21 through 17. You know these. They're the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols or graven images. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. Shall not commit adultery. Shall not steal. Shall not lie. Shall not covet. God seems to be very interested in how we treat each other. But let's look at this through the scope of goodness right now. Consider how each one of these commandments is teaching us that our worship should be good. Our speech must be good. Our time should be good. Our family must be good. We should treat life with goodness. Our sexuality should be good. Our possessions must be good. The wor- our very word, our commitment must be good. And we should treat our neighbor's possessions with goodness. God seems to be very interested in how we treat each other. Our ships are supposed to stay in formation and not collide. And they're supposed to be within right order within themselves. They're supposed to be functioning well and functioning properly. Quoting C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted in the wrong way. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all broken. We're all ships that are messed up on the inside, that can't help but steer and crash into one another. It is after you have realized that there is a moral law and a power behind the law that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all of this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. If we can actually understand that there is objective goodness and that we have failed that objective goodness, then we can start having a conversation about Jesus. When we look at the world and we see that it's full of evil, we are forced to recognize that we're no different. Given the same circumstances with the same influences, who are you and I to say that we would be any more good in the same situation? This is why there's no true righteousness aside and outside from our good creator A world where everyone lives in love is a dream that John Lennon will always have. It won't happen outside of God's goodness. But why Christianity? I find this so beautiful. This is worth writing down. Christianity has a sequence, a pattern, and it always moves from one to two to three to four. And it begins with this. It begins with repentance. It begins with our recognizing being out of line with what is objectively good, with what is God. And when we recognize our our failure and our brokenness, we can come to him, arms up, begging him to give us grace and mercy. And it's then and only then that God says, 
yes, this is why I died. And he purifies us. He washes us clean. Though our sins are red as scarlet, he makes us white as snow. Then we become righteous. Then the righteousness of Christ is laid over us. His goodness is now what we are wrapped in and flows through us. And as a response to his forgiveness, as a response to that righteousness that he gives us, we worship. Repentance, redemption, righteousness, worship. The innate moral law which gives recognition to the distance between mankind and righteousness, between me and righteousness, and the Holy Spirit's guidance towards himself brings us to repentance. Thank you, Jesus. This is the only way that a man can truly be altruistic. Because we give ourselves, don't miss this, the only way that man can truly be good. Why Christianity must be true is because it brings us to a self-sacrificing God who calls us to follow him in sacrificing ourselves in following his example for him and for each other. We come into relationship with a self-sacrificing God who calls us to sacrifice ourselves for him and for each other. Our God, by example, in his goodness, makes way for us to follow him in actual selfless love. That is why Christianity. But Dom, there are many kind and, and sweet and giving, loving atheists. And there are many cruel, mean, hypocritical Christians. Couldn't we just all be moral atheists? Isn't that possible? Why do we need God to be moral, even objectively? Why not live, why not just have like this worldwide domination set of rules for everybody? Because the problem isn't morality for the sake of being nice. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. This has never been about being nice. Those ships will still collide when what's going on inside the ships is still broken, still malfunctioning, and still abused. But Jesus didn't come to just make us float straight. Jesus came to repair the damage inside. But it goes even further. Back to the analogy of the ships. Yes. Number one is keeping them from crashing into each other. Number two is keeping them in right order from the inside out. But number three is where this really takes flight. Another quote from Mere Christianity. The person who says a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts some other human being understands that they must not damage other ships on the convoy. But he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business. But doesn't it make a difference whether I am the owner of myself or if my ship is responsible to the real owner? Just because the ships are sailing straight, just because they're in repair, doesn't mean that we own ourselves. If somebody else made me for his own purpose, 
then I will have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits, which we were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, there is no other. Sailing and not crashing into each other. Being in good working order. But also sailing on course in the right direction, fulfilling the purpose and journey that ship was supposed to be on. Do you understand all three? We're moving in a certain heading. We're supposed to all be on the same direction, staying on course. The definition of goodness, write this down. The definition of goodness is this. That which reflects God's nature in right or in right order with his purpose. What is objective goodness? It is that which reflects God's nature and is in line with God's purpose. That is good. That is right. That is just. That is righteous. That is holy. That is love. That which reflects God's nature and aligns with his purpose. God himself is good. I want to take you back to a beautiful story in the Old Testament. This is Exodus 33, 15 through 23. And I'll just give you a synopsis before we start actually reading. The children of Israel have made this big golden calf. God was very angry about it, was about to wipe everybody out. Moses goes to God and intercedes on behalf of the people. And God basically says, look, I'm going to give you the blessings. I'll give you the promised land, but my presence is not going to go with you. I'm not going to stay in the midst of the people. And Moses pleads to God, God, we we don't even want to move from this position unless you're with us. Please, God, go with us. How will people know that we're any different than the nations around us unless you're with us? And I want to read God's response. And if you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, that is the divine name of God, Yahweh. And so I'm going to insert that here as I read, because I think it just gives us extra emphasis. So Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. God's agreeing to Moses, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, and Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make my what? I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. How does God define his own presence on earth? He defines it as his goodness. God is goodness. Let's keep reading. But God says, you cannot see my face, for no man will see my face and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you'll stand on the rock. So it will be when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in a cave in the rock, and I will cover it with my hand until I pass by, and then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face you won't see. Let's jump to Exodus 34, verse 5. Now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses, with him, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So God is going to define his own character. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Are you ready? This is so beautiful. This is how God defines himself. 
Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. First of all, I want to compare the beauty of God's mercy being on Generations for the thousands of generations. Both forgiveness and judgment are dimensions of God's holiness. I don't have time to get into this, but that is, that is crazy. When we say that God is good to sinners, it still means that he acts justly towards their sin. Other writers have declared that God is good. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see, as in experience, that the Lord, that Yahweh is good. Blesses the man who trusts in him. Blesses the man that trusts in the God of goodness. Jesus is speaking about himself in Mark 10, 17 through 18. Now, as Jesus was going on the road, one came to him, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher! What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. Capital O. No one is good but one. That is God. There is objective goodness, and it doesn't come from within man. It comes from outside and above man. That is God. And also notice that Jesus slips in his little, by the way, I'm God, (laughs) you know, in that phrase. Why do you call me good? Recognize, if you're calling me good, yes, I'm God, thank you. I also want you to recognize, elevate, that all God does is good. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Skip to verse 31. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. God not only is good, he also creates only what is good, Because he defines, sets the bar for, is sovereign over what is good. God only treats mankind with goodness. Remember, God's goodness is both mercy and justice. Love and wrath. Both come from God's good nature. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no, get this, variation or shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is nothing but good and will never ever be anything but good. It is his very nature. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. God treats mankind with goodness. God expects goodness from his creation. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These things are considered good. Justice, mercy, and humility. God places his goodness on his people. This is where his people can walk in the fruit of goodness. Let's go back to the psalm that we started with. Psalm 31, 19 through 20. 
Oh, great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them where? Think back of Moses. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. That is beautiful. God called his creation good, but his creation rebelled. His creation rejected goodness and became evil, the absence of God. And yet God, for those who turn to him, places his goodness on them and they can hide in the secret place of his presence. Oh, great is your goodness. How does God place his goodness on people? There has to be a responsibility in us. Remember, we're not pursuing the fruit of the Spirit that we call goodness. We're pursuing Jesus, who is God, who is goodness. John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. We come to Jesus and we are surrendering our weak, subjective morality. Our code of ethics, which gives us license to do whatever we want, as long as we can rationalize it. Ultimately, we surrender our will to him, to his objective goodness. We abdicate our right to do what we want. We come to him as slaves. He fills us with himself, with his goodness, and he makes us sons and daughters. That is the Jesus that we follow. Repentance, purification, righteousness, and worship. So Elevate, I challenge you. If you have not surrendered your will to him, if you're playing around with subjective goodness, just getting away with whatever you feel is right at the time, I challenge you to turn from what is foolish, empty, and evil, and to give yourself to the creator, to goodness himself, so that he can bestow on you himself, who is goodness Elevate every week. I want to challenge you with a few ways of spending time with Jesus. I hope you're spending time with him and in his presence every day, soaking him up and then just exuding the fruit of the spirit wherever you go. And here's our three for this week. Read a Psalm every day for seven days. Read it out loud. Use it to worship. Add it into your prayer. Figure out how to pray the Psalm. Read a Psalm every day for seven days. Number two, meditate on a question about him. That's theology is thinking and studying God. And he is big enough to handle our hard, tough questions. Uh, Maybe I raised a whole bunch of questions tonight. You can go read Mere Christianity if you want more depth and detail by C.S. Lewis. But sit, dwell, pray, think about one of those hard questions. Ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. Study him, pursue him. Because as we draw close to him, he draws close to us. And the third one, and you may have to do this alone. It's okay. I challenge you to spend time in worship and dance. Get alone, turn off the lights, whatever you got to do, but just put yourself in there. This is a different kind of dancing than what happens in the club, some sort of like horizontal sex or something like that. This is you and your God, and you're just expressing love and worship by being in motion. So there you go. There's three. Read a psalm a day. Meditate on a question about him. If you need to be alone, dance.
Dance before your God. You're doing it. You're going to do it in heaven. It might as well start now. Elevate. I love you. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your consistent, objective goodness. And thank you, Lord, that those who walk in you and with you will also flow with goodness. We love you, Holy Father. Open up our hearts. Help us to surrender. Help us to have the courage to lay down our subjective fallen will to be yours. Jesus, our night is yours. Our day is yours. And we give it all to you. In your name, Yahweh, we pray. Amen. I love you, Elevate. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.